Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. Well, we're in a series called The War, uh, a series that has been moving verse by verse through the sixth chapter of Ephesians, extrapolating there from there to other texts in the Word of God that will shed some light on Ephesians chapter 6 for us uh, as it concerns the subject of spiritual warfare. What does it look like to go to war with our enemy? We've been learning through these last several weeks that we have an enemy who seeks our destruction, and yet God has given us every resource that is available so that we can not only endure that attack, but have overwhelming victory over our enemy. We've also learned through this process that spiritual warfare is not nearly as romantic as is often described in the movies, even Christian movies, that spiritual warfare is not particularly complicated or hard uh, to understand. Spiritual warfare is about me getting myself ready to obey the Lord in all things every single day. And the analogy that Paul has been using in Ephesians chapter 6 to teach us that principle is the analogy of a soldier who's putting on armor. And so we've looked at several pieces of that armor already uh, over the summer, and we continue today with Ephesians chapter 6, verse 16, and we come today to this piece of instruction. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. That's what we're looking at today. With which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Now, we've already learned that when the scriptures speak of spiritual warfare, they tell us, Paul tells us in in verse 10, actually, very, very early in this section of the scriptures, that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. My enemies are not people of another religion. My enemies are not people of no religion. My enemies are not people who think differently than me, act differently than me, prefer different things than me. My enemy is Satan. Everyone else is someone that Jesus died to save. This is what Christian teaching uh, would would teach us and would commend to us. Uh, And yet, at the same time, we have to be careful that we don't so spiritualize this battle that we don't understand, that, that we fail to understand that even that which is spiritual can also be very tangible. Just because this is a spiritual battle doesn't mean it's less real than a tangible battle that you might engage in with the senses. We're reminded that those spiritual threats are very real. And to illustrate that point, Paul illustrates here that with the analogy of flaming darts, Some translations will say a flaming arrow or a a fire-tipped dart. In the ancient world, these were actually uh, javelin-type weapons, and sometimes they would be thrown by the enemy. Sometimes they would be launched by machinery, and the, the best machinery at least you could use in ancient warfare, toward an enemy. But before they were launched or thrown, they were lit on fire, which I think sounds kind of fun. Uh, cause I had a ball on the 4th of July. I'm just going to tell you. And so, but they would light these things on fire and then they would send them out toward the enemy. And of course, as that javelin gathered speed and the oxygen in the air would catch that flame, that flame would get bigger. And by the time it got within proximity of the enemy that it was seeking to eliminate, that flame was huge. It was intimidating and it was threatening. And so to protect soldiers going into battle against those weapons, 
soldiers were issued a shield. Now, sometimes when you think about a shield, you think about the small sort of oblong thing. They had one of those as well for close quarter combat. Uh, But when Paul speaks about the shield of faith, the word he uses in the Greek language is actually the word that, that corresponds to this instrument right here. It was actually about four and a half feet tall and about two and a half feet wide. In fact, even though the technology has, has obviously progressed exponentially over the last 2,000 years, the concept really hasn't changed all that much. So uh, if these guys were being issued this stuff in the 21st century, it would look something like this. It's great to have friends in law enforcement. I've been playing with all kinds of tools and everything else. This is a riot shield. Right, And so what it does is if you've got an unruly crowd and you've got to get control of them, otherwise there's going to be mass pandemonium and destruction in a city or in an area some way, you use this shield, interestingly enough, as you're moving toward the people that you're trying to get control of. And so what this will do is it will repel. Well, this one actually won't because it's just a, it's, it's, this is Shepherd University police. Um, so this one's actually not bulletproof. Uh, they wouldn't let me have the bulletproof one. I don't know. Uh, but, <clears throat> but imagine for a moment that it is. All right? So whatever is going to get launched at this thing, whoever gave me this must have been a lefty, um, whoever's going to launch anything against this thing, it's going to get repelled because you're going to hold it up and you're going to have other, other police with you side by side and you're forming kind of a human shield. And guess what's happening? You're not just repelling the firepower that's coming towards you. You are repelling it as you continue to move forward. So when Paul speaks about the shield of faith, that's the scenario that he's describing. It's not just enduring something that Satan puts on you. It is continuing to walk forward in faith in the victory that is yours in Christ, even as those flaming darts might come against you. That's the reality that he's describing. And that is available to every single person in front of me right now. The shield of of faith. But in order for us to understand how to use that shield in a spiritual standpoint, we, we've got to understand what faith is. What is faith? Well, we see this elsewhere in the New Testament. If you look at 1 Peter 5, 8, you'll see that uh, we, it's a text we've been looking at for some time now. And, and, and what we see there is Peter says there is a, an enemy who prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But then we read the following in 1 Peter 5, 9, resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So you need to resist, and the way you do that is with this thing called faith. Faith is a shield, Paul describes in Ephesians 6. Faith can repel the enemy. It can, you can resist the enemy with this thing called faith. So it becomes really important then, doesn't it, that we accurately define what we're talking about when we talk about faith. There's a story about a Sunday school teacher who asked a classroom full of small children, what is faith? And very quickly, a five-year-old little girl shot up her hand, and with all the confidence she could muster, she said, faith is believing in something even when you know it's not true. Now, what I wonder is how many adults actually think that's what faith is? Yeah, you talk about faith, you talk about Jesus, you're in church, you're in your Bible, uh, but when it comes to actively living this thing out, the way your life course is going, people look at you and you're like, you know, God's just sort of your imaginary friend. The way you react to problems and circumstances in your life, well, God's just, you know, God's just this thing I invoke, but I'm not really acting as though he's real, as though this thing is happening Meanwhile, 
Paul is insistent that this spiritual protection is necessary of this shield called faith. He says, take it up in verse 16 of Ephesians 6, which has a threefold meaning, actually, not just to pick it up, but to take it along, meaning you don't put it down. Just this past week, very, very prominent pastor put down his shield. He put it down. He walked away. He said the philosophers call this deconstruction. The Bible admittedly calls it falling away. I am no longer a Christian. Now, when I see something like that, it makes me afraid. Rightfully so. It makes me appeal to my heavenly father. With the words of that old hymn, I am prone to wander. I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take it, seal it. Seal it for your courts above. It is only by you and by your faith, by your grace, that I'm going to finish well. And I've got to make that determination that I'm going to do it. So don't just take it up. Take it along. Carry it. And then finally, there's a sense in which this word to take up means equip yourself with it. So you can carry that shield around, but if it's all the time at your side and you're not holding it up, it does you no good. So those are the things that, that are implied in this, this command to take up the shield of faith. Now, here's the good news. God's word defines what this means very clearly for us. And in order for us to see the, the substance of Paul's command, we're going back to the text that Pastor Bob read at the beginning of our time of worship together. It, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is. Did that get your attention? The definition is coming. What is it? It's two things. The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So faith is two things. Number one, it's assurance. It's a ground of confidence on which I can stand. Several years ago, I had a meeting at a restaurant out in Deep Creek Lake, Maryland. How many of you have been there? How many of you have been there in the wintertime? It was like single digits. It had been there that way for a couple of weeks. And this particular restaurant, it was an Uno Chicago Grill. Some of you may have dined there before. It has this big bay-style window that overlooks Deep Creek Lake. And I saw several people ice fishing out there. They walked out onto the ice. They drilled a hole. I don't know how many inches deep that stuff was. And they were out there. And I thought, wow, that takes confidence. And then a few minutes later, I looked and I saw an SUV. And I thought, yeah, that's faith. That's faith. Somebody is assured either legitimately, maybe illegitimately, but, but they're assured because they wouldn't otherwise have the confidence to go out there. They believe that ice beneath them was strong enough. That's what assurance means. It means I have seen God at work in the world. I know what he's capable of. I, he gives me a sure foundation and that foundation gives me hope. It is assurance of the things that I hope for, but then it's something else too. It's a conviction. Now, don't confuse conviction with other things. Some of you are like, well, I'm just, it's a conviction I have. No, you're just stubborn and you won't listen, okay? That's not conviction. The way the Bible describes conviction as directed toward God is, is almost like gravity. I've never seen it, but I have experienced it. I'm experiencing it now. I see its effects every day in the fact that I am held on this earth and not flying off of it, in the fact that occasionally I look in the mirror and I go, <laughs> gravity. Yeah. I see it. I know it's there. It's a conviction. 
of something that I can't see with my own eyes. And so faith is the following. It is the confident hope on which I can stand regardless of what's transpiring in my life. And it is a full-blown and alterable conviction of realities that I can't see. That's what faith is. And that's what Paul is describing when he says you need to take up that shield, keep that shield on you at all times, use that shield to equip you. And then he gives an example of what he's talking about in verse 3. He says, by faith, for example, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So if you have faith, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, means that among other things, I believe that everything around me that I can see and even the things I cannot see that are tangible, ultimately they're a part of the created order, were created, they were spoken into existence by the word of God. I wasn't there, so there's a lot of questions that I can't answer, but I've seen evidence of it. Psalm 19.1 says that the heavens declare the glory of God. Romans 1, 20 and 21 tells me that the, the existence of God has been proven to all of humanity by the created order itself. And so I look around and I see evidence and based on that evidence, I stand firmly on the conviction that there is a God. And this is the shield that Paul describes that protects us from those flaming darts that are thrown at us by the enemy. You know, I think sometimes about the first people that would have ever read this letter, the letter to the church at Ephesus. Some of those people were Roman soldiers. I think about what, how these words would have fallen on them, those familiar with ancient warfare, particularly those who were soldiers who had served in, in forward areas, perhaps on behalf of the Roman army, and they would have instantly recognized the analogy Post-traumatic stress syndrome was not a thing back then, or at least wasn't something that, that culture was aware of in the first century. But I can almost imagine words like that triggering those who'd been affected by those kinds of experiences who were sitting in the congregation hearing those words because the picture that it paints is an intimidating one. If you can imagine hundreds, maybe even thousands of those javelin-type instruments being thrown or launched in your direction, having been previously lit on fire. And as it sails through the air, the oxygen is igniting that fire all the more, perhaps even connecting the fire on this one with this one and this one with this one until it grows and grows and grows till when it gets in your proximity, the proximity of its target, it looks like the entire sky is on fire and falling on top of you. That's the, that's the fierceness of the battle that Paul describes here. And you know, you really don't have to have military experience to understand that, do you? Some of you may have never served in a forward area, but you're suffering from something right now, and it feels like the sky is on fire. I have so, I mean, there are so many stories that I'm familiar with in front of me and that will be in the next service and the confidentiality of my office will always be guarded, but you've trusted me with those stories. And you just need to know as I prepared this message, I have thought of you, every one of you, your marriages, your children, your job, your finances, whatever those problems were, and your pastor has prayed for you. And I can tell you this, you are not alone. You are surrounded by people who either are at present or have in the past, and if neither of those are true, they will in the future, feel like the sky is on fire coming down on top of them. You are not 
alone. You are surrounded by others. And what I want you to be encouraged by today is that there's a confident hope that you can stand on based on a conviction of realities that you may not be able to physically see right now. The shield of faith doesn't just protect you from that. God's God's plan for you right now in the midst of that fire-filled sky that feels like it's coming down on you isn't just to kneel down like this and hope that none of it catches you. It is for you to throw that shield up in front and continue to walk through the flames. God has given you that authority in the name of Jesus. And we see that here. There's a reference to the fierceness of that battle in an ancient hymn called the Qumran Hymns of Thanksgiving. Some of you, this may describe your life. They have let fly arrows against which there is no cure. And the flame of their javelins is like a consuming fire among trees. Some of you are like, I don't rhyme. It was written in another language. But, 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 but consider those words for just a moment. How many people in front of me, that, that's what life feels like for you right now. There is a confident hope. If we want to better understand what Paul means when he writes these words in Ephesians 6, we need to examine what the author of Hebrews is telling us about faith. That shield with which Paul tells us you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the enemy. Three things. Number one, faith is available to everyone. Everybody. If you look at verses 4 through 31, when you go home this afternoon or sometime this week, I would encourage you to just read those profiles of all those different people who are considered the hall of faith. I've actually seen Bible commentaries who describe these. These are the characters in the hall of faith. And there's this long list of people who supposedly exemplified what it meant to carry the shield of faith. Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Abraham's wife, Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Rahab and Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel. And if we familiarize ourselves with all of the biographies of those characters, we come very quickly to two conclusions. And the first one is that there is an inherent sinfulness in each one of these people. Sometimes you think, well, I got to get to a certain level of holiness or I've got to get to a certain level and, and then I can pick up the shield of faith. And I would submit to you, brothers and sisters, you can't pick up the shield. That, that's the first thing you got to do. Otherwise, you're never going to get to those other things. And that is proven in the lives and the biographies of these characters. You know, sometimes it's easily easy to romanticize Bible characters, isn't it? Like David and Goliath. Yeah, we forget about that whole thing with Bathsheba. Or we minimize it, you know. We try to tell people living in sin, well, you're like David. That's not a good thing. It's not. And so you, you look at the, the biographies of these characters, and man, you, you're like, wow. It's easy to, to lionize people. You know, our church belongs to a network of thousands of other churches that, among other things, support six theological institutions of higher learning that train pastors around the country. One of those institutions, several years ago, built a new chapel on its campus, and they put up stained glass windows, and they etched into those stained glass windows the pictures of men, mostly, I think there was one or two women in there, 
who had led with distinction this network of churches. Heroes of the faith. About a year ago, it was discovered that more than one or two of those people etched into those stained glass had actually covered up sexual assault. So those stained glass windows have been removed. Now, that's one thing to respect your leaders. Hebrews talks about that later in, in the letter, that you need to obey your, your spiritual leaders and submit to them and respecting the office of pastor and deacon and those things. Those, that's one thing. It's one thing to respect. It's quite another thing to lionize. There's only one lion of Judah. I don't even like the whole reverend thing, to be honest with you. I mean, ordination's kind of a cultural invention anyway. Um, and, and when I read the Bible, I only read one person called reverend. Only one. Uh, just something to think about there for a moment, because when you lionize these kinds of people, you can fall into a trap. We've got to be honest about this list. Abraham was the father of a nation. He was the fountainhead of blessing, which eventually was the Lord Jesus. We should be thankful to Abraham and all of his progeny for that. But Abraham was also a coward who was willing to pimp out his own wife in order to save his own skin. We forget that. Jephthah made a foolish and reckless vow to God that cost him the life of his own daughter. We could go on and on about these biographies. The author's point inherent in each of these biographies is that these were not great men. These were men and women who had faith in a great God. So whatever's going on in your life right now, that should be the object of your faith. It's not how great am I, how wonderful am I, how, how, you know, how impressive am I, not very but we serve a great God, and we need to have faith in that God. Here's the second thing we see when we look at all these biographies, and that is the invitation of every single person. Not only should we not lionize people that we assume, assume to be great, we should not assume the worst about people that we might be in our own minds prone to marginalize. Think for a moment about Rahab, who makes this list. She's a Canaanite prostitute. I mean, I don't know about you, wouldn't that be the person you would at least expect to be a person of faith if you saw them on the street, pun intended? Would you really look at them and say, look, but as it turns out, when, when the Israelite spies used her home as a staging center, she expressed a greater faith in God than many of the cowardly Israelites on the other side of the river. And the result of that faith is that she will go on to marry one of those two spies, a man by the name of Salmon. And together, she and Salmon will have a child, a son named Boaz. If you know or are familiar with the rest of the, the, the story of the Hebrew Scriptures, you know that it is Boaz who is one of the heroes in the story of Ruth. He mar marries this widow woman named Ruth, and the two of them have a son. His name is Obed. Obed then goes on to have a son named Jesse, and it is Jesse's son David who will go on to become one of the greatest kings Israel has ever known, and a man they continue to celebrate today, a man whose star flies on the flag of the current nation state over in the Middle East. You, I want you to think about that for a moment. That's what faith does. It takes a Canaanite prostitute, and it transforms her into the great-grandmother of King David. So whatever's going on in your life, faith can change it. Faith can give you that new perspective. 
And I want you to see that. Take up the shield of faith. See his existence and his providential work above everything that life is throwing at you right now because that faith is available to all, and that's a good thing. Because the other thing we learn in this text is that that faith is essential for faithfulness. Don't just take it up. Keep it up. Keep it up. Don't lay it down like a famous pastor did just this week. You keep it. You keep it in front of you. Verses 32 to 38 reveal two groups of people who prove to us that this is sometimes easier said than done. Keep faith. You ever been through a, just, a, just a mountain of trouble and somebody could just, just keep believing and you wanted to hit them? Yeah. Well, these, these verses, I don't know if they'll encourage you or not, but the, you should at least be able to identify with at least one of these two groups of people whose lives were characterized by vastly different experiences. And, and the comparison of these two groups illustrates the reality of what we've just learned. Faith really is about the unseen and not the seen. It really is. We have a tendency sometimes to, to inaccurately correlate faith with success. It's why we like to hear successful musicians, successful athletes, successful Hollywood stars who talk about God and occasionally mention Jesus. One guy got up to receive an award, I think it was about a year ago, and I, I heard Christians all over social media, and even some of you, and I love you, but they were like, oh, isn't that wonderful? And if you'd listen to the guy for a minute, he really didn't say anything. He talked about God. We're, it's like we're, we're associating the success of a guy who's got a lot of cameras on him with excellent faith, with good faith. That not only sets us up for a fall, because occasionally those people do fall. They will put their shield down or demonstrate that they never had it in the first place, and then it leaves us emptied out. The other thing it will do is it will cause us to miss, sometimes in our own lives, many times, and looking at the lives of others, who really has faith. We have an equal tendency to ignore or marginalize people whose lives don't match that correlation. They don't look successful. So how in the world could we show them as people of faith? Some of you might even be in front of me right now. That guy who constantly struggles financially, Pastor, could we really have him under the spotlight as an example of faith? I mean, wouldn't it be better if we had somebody with millions of dollars to do that? That single mom who always seems to be dealing with chronic health issues, I mean, can she really be an example of faith? Is she really? There may be some of those ladies in front of me right now wondering, yeah, can I really? Because I felt the fire, the fire's coming down on me. Can I really feel that way? Pastor, are you really telling me a homeless person can be a model of genuine faith? Is that really what you're telling me? That those parents whose kid went buck wild... Can they really be models of faith? Can we really hold these people up? When we think like that, it is almost as if we're saying, you know what, the, the cross and the resurrection is just not enough. Jesus needs my success story. That's dangerous ground to stand on. That's almost like this riot shield, which looks bulletproof, but it's really not. You can't set yourself up that way. And, and, and one of the things that we see that confounds and just obliterates that kind of thinking are two lists of people. Take a look at list one. 
who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of the fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection. Now that sounds like faith, doesn't it? Look at list number two. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. Which group would you prefer to be in? Yeah, anybody with a brain goes, give me number one, right? What the author of Hebrews is pointing out here is that the, the, you don't always see the, the example of genuine faith tangibly produced in, in some kind of prosperity. It, 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 we are so image conscious, as if Jesus is going to look bad if we announce that we know him and that we're hanging on to him in the middle of moments that are trying for us. And, and some of you, you want to, like, man... I love my pastor, but why does he hate the prosperity gospel? This is why. Because when I hear people say, God wants you healthy, wealthy, wise, never have any problems. If you're experiencing any financial difficulty, if you're experiencing any sickness, if you're experiencing it, there's something going on with you. There's a lack of faith. And I don't listen to that as a theologian because I would have an aneurysm. There is no theology in that. I listen to that as a pastor, and I think about the stories in my office, and I think about how words like that, unintentionally, I'm sure, but beat so many of you down. It's why I tell you to turn that crap off. One preacher put it this way, I can't be a blessing to people if I'm poor and broke. Jesus had to borrow a donkey. He had to borrow a room. He had to borrow a tomb. Yeah, I'm not going to believe that about you. If you feel like the fire is coming down on you, you need something better than that, brothers and sisters, to get you through that fire. I'm going to choose to believe what the Word of God says about you, whether you're in list number one or list number two. There's nothing wrong with success stories. We'd all rather be there. Here's what I'm going to believe. This is what the Word of the Lord says about those people. Look at Hebrews 11:38, Of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and in caves of the earth, this pastor chooses to believe about you what the word of the Lord says about you. Look, success stories are great. They're fine. But more powerful still are people who can't seem to catch a break, who seem to suffer one gut punch right after another, and who in their suffering refuse to put down the shield of faith and choose to believe in the Lord Jesus. And I choose to believe about you what the Bible says about you. The world is not worthy of you. I choose to believe that. And in fact, if this describes you, you're in pretty good company. Look at what Paul said about himself and his own ministry in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, 
so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. He's, thinking, he's talking about prison experiences. He's talking about being beaten. Real faith is not dependent on me changing my reality or even me somehow foolishly trying to declare a new reality. Real faith, brandishing the shield that makes you impermeable to Satan's attack is dependent on you submitting to God's reality. This is available to everybody. It is essential for you to be grounded in this way. And the third thing is, this shield brings ultimate victory. Look at verses 39 and 40. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. You're like, what? Since God had provided something better for us, remember, faith is the assurance of things I hope for, not necessarily already possess. It is the evidence. It is the, it is the conviction of things I cannot see. There's something better out there that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Even, even the successful ones in list number one did not see everything that was coming to them. They didn't see their, their earthly success, success as part of that ultimate reward. I mean, they were glad to have it, but they knew there's something better on the other side of this. Most of the time when we speak of satanic attack, we describe it in terms of, of those tangible things, don't we? Suffering and poverty and destitution and hopelessness. And conversely, when we speak of the blessing of God, we talk about prosperity and abundance and good health. And we Look at this picture of this brand new car I got. Hashtag blessed. Look at me and my family on vacation. Hashtag blessed. We don't understand what it means to be blessed. Now, it's okay to enjoy those things. It's okay to be thankful to God for them. James tells us that every good and perfect gift come down from, comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no shadow or shifting or turning. So we could be absolutely thankful. But do not, brothers and sisters, conflate thankfulness with blessedness. They are two different things. Thankfulness comes when there is something coming into your life that you appreciate, you're good, you recognize ultimately this comes from God and I'm going to thank him for it. Blessedness is a state of mind that is not, brothers and sisters, dependent on whether or not I get the car or whether or not everything this year turns out the way that I hoped it would turn out. One of the recommended books I'll be releasing this fall, and you'll see it on the book table, there's a new list coming in just about a month or so, is written by the late Elizabeth Elliot. And the title of it is, Suffering is Never for Nothing. And she should know. She should know. In 1956, she and her relatively new husband, Jim, and their toddler daughter left Wheaton College in Illinois to the Amazon jungle to reach the Waldani Indian tribe, a savage, dangerous tribe. And it was not long after that until her husband, along with a number of his fellow missionaries, were brutally murdered by that tribe. If Twitter has, had existed during that time period, I can almost see the, you know, just found my husband's speared body on a sandbar next to his airplane that they completely took apart. Hashtag blessed. And we would think, man, what a crazy woman that is to say something like that. But years later, her decision, along with some of the other women who'd lost their husbands, to take themselves and 
their infants and their toddlers back into that jungle to take the love of Jesus to the people that had murdered their spouses resulted in hundreds of the Waodani coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, blessed is exactly the word you're looking for. And the only way you do that is with the shield of faith. When that fire is coming down, you throw that thing up and you keep moving forward and you say, I'm going to be obedient no matter what. Nothing will keep you from the deadly conflation of blessedness and thankfulness like these two lists of people in Hebrews 11. These people, both of them, understood that the ultimate promise doesn't come in this world but the next one. So those who suffer can persevere. Those that can have a comparatively easy life don't need to get blinded by the present. Both believed God had something better for them. Look at these words in 1 Corinthians 2, 9. As it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love them. You cannot see it. It is not tangible. But there should be a conviction that it is no less real. There is a more real reality on the other side of the veil, and I am headed toward that. Brothers and sisters, that will not just help you live to the glory of God, it will help you die to the glory of God. How many bedsides have I been at of people who claim to know the name of Jesus, some of them filled with fear and depression? One guy went months with a chronic illness toward his death. I never saw him without tears. And all he could talk about was everything he was leaving behind. And oh, the saints by whose bed I have been, who, yeah, will miss their spouse, will miss their children, but who believe and have believed their entire life that there's something better coming, and who look with a smile and a radiance even in the face of those chilly waters of death and say to their loved ones, I'll see you soon. I'll see you soon. That's the kind of shield that Paul is talking about. It's not dependent on my circumstances. It's not dependent on how successful I appear. It is dependent on the death and the resurrection of Jesus because contrary to the popular belief in Western Christendom, Jesus does not need my success story. There is one who lived for me, his life, my only victory. His death forever sealed in time that I am his and he is mine. That not only protects you from the enemy's lies and threats, it helps you move forward to the better thing. So here's the question that comes out of all this. Do I trust God enough to do whatever he asks, regardless of the opposition, regardless of of the difficulties because difficulties are coming some of you like i say you've already experienced it for some of you it's going to get worse before it gets better for this church difficulties are coming you're like whoa wait a minute we're out of debt things are bad yeah yeah you don't think the enemy's going to leave that alone do you are you naive it's coming you don't do serious kingdom work without opposition you don't do serious kingdom work i mean serious stuff without the devil seeking to infiltrate the hearts and the minds even of God's own people and turn them against each other. Let me tell you, there's some stuff that is coming. 
Temptations are coming. Opportunities to take the easy way out are coming. Get ready for the javelins to start, th- to start flying. Get ready for that fire. Get ready to feel that heat. And know this. God has given you, he has given us every resource we need to protect ourselves and continue to move forward through anything that the enemy throws at us. Take up the shield of faith. Let's talk to the Father together, shall we? Lord Jesus, I thank you that you have not left us without everything we need. You have not left us as an irresponsible parent leaves orphans. Father, you have sent the Holy Spirit. And Father, it is through his empowerment that we can have precisely the kind of faith that you challenge us to have through your servant Paul and that you describe through your servant, the author of Hebrews. Lord, I pray that that's a reality. There's, I have no doubt there are people within the sound of my voice right now that are undergoing just unspeakable trials and tribulations and they're wondering where you are and they're questioning their own value and in this world that is filled with uh, even Christians who want to hide everything that doesn't look like worldly success, they're wondering, probably like Rahab was, whether they are of any use to you. Lord, I pray you would encourage those sheep today to take up that shield and to just keep marching. Furthermore, Lord, I pray that you would give us a perspective that is otherworldly, that you would allow us to see those ways that you have continued to work and do continue to work in this body, in those little nooks and crannies that that we don't even notice. Father, would you encourage your sheep today? Would you empower them today? Would you give them a shield that cannot be penetrated by the enemy? I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already receive from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.